Welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Episode 7 with Sky Solback. We've got a great episode for you this week and I'd like to firstly thank everyone for the feedback on last week's episode with Pete Cabrina. I had some really great responses to that one, including someone who wrote in and said it was like the Desert Island Discs for cool people, which I really liked. So thanks for getting in touch and letting me know that you're enjoying these. This week my guest is a guy called Sky Solback. He's an American board shaper who's responsible for some of the most popular surfboards in the kite surfing world. Together with his wife Kristin, he bought some land on Maui and they started building a house which I found really interesting. I've been watching this story unfold on Facebook and so I really wanted to have a chat with him about it. When I found out I was going to be in Tarifa this summer with Sky, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to sit down and ask him about the house that they built and the farm that they created which at one point had over 50 chickens and loads of goats as he and his wife tried to live a very sustainable life. We also talk about his travels, his early career, and there's a really interesting story about how he moved with his family from California to Bonaire, a Dutch-speaking island, where they had to learn the language and get in with the local vibe. Sky's a really interesting guy. He's super humble, really great to talk to, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. As ever, if you're enjoying these, please give them a share on social media, tell your friends about them, and if you feel like it, Give us a five-star rating on your app as well. Let's get into this week's episode with Sky Solback. Hi, I'm sat here with Sky Solback, a surfboard shaper from the island of Maui. He's not from there originally. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's had quite a, a very interesting life, I would say, from where he started out to where he is now. And thought it'd be good to sit down with Sky and have a catch-up and a bit of a conversation and see what he's up to now. Sky, you started life as a pro kiteboarder back in the day. You've been in the sport since <laughs> the very inception. Yeah. How did you get into water sports and kiteboarding in particular? Uh, well, my parents, so I was born in California, Northern California, and um, my parents were big skiers, uh, okay. snow skiers when, when I was a kid. And so I kind of grew up uh, my first five or six years in California I remember going to the mountains with my parents skiing and, um, you know, in the wintertime, obviously, in Lake Tahoe and places like that. And my parents in the summertime were really into windsurfing back then in the 80s. And uh, so I learned to windsurf when I was maybe five or six years old. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, some of my first memories were just going to the beach with my dad and um, and my older brother. I have an older brother who's two, two and a half years older than me, so... He was, uh, you know, obviously windsurfing before me, and we kind of pushed each other as we were growing up. And um, and then when I was eight or nine, maybe, uh, we moved to the Caribbean. Yep. My parents were really fanatical about windsurfing, and they went there on vacation and fell in love with the place, a little island called Bonaire. Oh, yeah. Dutch, no. Dutch island. And, uh, yeah, ended up selling everything in California, selling the house, giving the dogs away, and we moved to the Caribbean. No way. And, uh, and then so... From nine years old on, I was in the Caribbean and was able to be in the ocean every day. And, and windsurfing and surfing were really my things. And yeah. fishing. Windsurfing, surfing, fishing were my my everyday activities. And then uh, when I was 18, I learned to kite. Wow. Yep. That's pretty awesome. So you spent a long time windsurfing. Did you ever yeah. get to a sort of professional level with that? Or was it still just a kind of fun I, thing? I competed. Yeah. yeah I, I used to do... Uh, yeah, we used to travel around with my family and do different windsurfing events. And... Uh, 
then we started coming to the gorge in yep. the Hood River in the summertime when I was maybe like 12. Maybe I went there, maybe even younger, yeah, 11 or 12. And uh, yeah, just competed in events like the Gorge Games and local windsurfing events and uh, never really on a professional level, I guess, uh, more just amateur level. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that I, I grew up competing windsurfing. Yeah, yeah. so you've for, always had that years. Yeah. competitive nature, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then with kiteboarding, you were kind of right there at the beginning, which meant that you got quite good quite quickly, or in those days, you didn't have to be that good to be. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, back then, a lot the difference between a beginner and a pro was like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I started kiting, uh, I started kiting in Bonaire, in the Caribbean, uh, with my dad. Yeah. A friend of ours had a two-line Whippica Classic. And uh, it was like 2000, 2001, I think. And uh, yeah, we were just on the beach, light wind, too light to windsurf. And a friend of ours was trying to learn how to kite with his kite. He was getting frustrated. And he's like, yeah, here, you guys try it. And so we had to go and, and ended up doing some long swims and <laughs> had some fun trying to relaunch the kite and figure it out. And then ended up like taking one of my old surfboards and putting foot straps on the deck and made our first kite board. And then... Um, yeah, just kind of went from there. Yeah. And so, how was it growing up in Bonaire? I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds like kind of a dreamy life, I guess, to anyone listening in. Was it mm-hmm. as perfect as all that, or was it quite tough leaving California, leaving your friends, uh, and shipping over it was, somewhere Yeah, new? it was kind of crazy at first, because it's a Dutch-speaking island, okay. and so uh, we were, my parents put us straight into school, my brother and I, and we were... Dutch-speaking school. Yeah, and we're like, <laughs> and like all Dutch-speaking, and we didn't speak any Dutch when we went there. <laughs> it's but, not an easy language to yeah, learn, is it? Yeah, we were, I guess my parents figured we were young enough that we would just catch soak on, it up. And which we did. I mean, it took a couple months of not knowing what the hell was going on in the classroom and then slowly figuring it out and then eventually being able to speak Dutch. And, um, and we were like two, maybe, I think there were two, two of us and maybe we were like two of four white kids in the whole school. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of like culture shock moving yeah, there, but a bit of a strange um, one. But it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. after we got over the initial like six months of learning the language and figuring it all out, it was yeah, it was awesome. We were able to, like school got out. School was from seven thirty to twelve thirty every day. No way! So it was really and early so, and gave you most. Yeah, of the well, it, gets, it gets so hot in the middle of the day you can't sit in the classroom. So, so you have to since, go in early and yeah, get you out. Go in early when it's cool, and then get school done with for the That's day. That's perfect then, for surfing and yeah. kiting and windsurfing yeah. and fishing. You've got yeah. So we had the rest of the day to go to the beach. And, yeah. Um, you know, my parents were really into windsurfing, so they'd take us to the beach, and we just, just windsurfing. Pretty much just grew up in the Have water. Fun. Yeah. Awesome. And then you've always did you were you always with North kiteboarding when you became a professional? No. Rider back in I, the day, how did that start? Who was your first sponsorship deal? So I, I learned on that Whippica Classic, and that was about two weeks. And then uh, we got a hold of a Nash kite that uh, we bought or, or got a hand down from a friend. And then uh, rode that Nash for a while. And then my first kind of sponsor, the first people who actually gave me gear were Slingshot. Okay. So I knew uh, I guess from being Tony, in the hood. Yeah, yeah, the river. I knew uh, Tony Lagos and another guy, uh, Bob Riviello, who worked at the shop at the time. Uh, and Chris Wyman. Yep. Um, but so they kind of hooked me up with some gear and, and kind of got me going. And so I rode some slingshot kites. I think they were the first fuels for like two months or something. And then I kind of got sponsored by Nash. Yeah. Uh, just national, like the, the U.S. Nash guys. And I rode Nash for maybe six months. And then I got a sponsorship deal. My first paying sponsorship was from Gastro Kites. Okay. And that was like 2000 middle of 2002 i think it was like 
from '02 to middle of '04, I rode gastro for those two years. Way and back then, in the day. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> way back. Yeah. And they were actually great kites at the time. They were like really great jumping kites, the style of riding we were doing back then. It was just all about riding super powered and boosting and going yeah. huge. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, that, that brand kind of, you know, mismanagement and some other things just didn't really work out. And, uh, and then I got lucky enough to get on north in 2004. I became traveling and competing. I became really good friends with Jaime. Okay. Arise. And uh, yeah, they just happened to be looking for someone to help them out with testing and being a team rider. And so Jaime kind of brought me into the north family. And uh, so right as the gastro thing was coming to an end, I kind of was able to get on north get on and kind of go from there. And I've been, I've been there ever since. Awesome. I think we met in 2005 at one of the north meetings in Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was when I first met you. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah Raz Sudra, that was a fun yeah. trip. And yeah. you had um, you had a pro model board with North for a while, didn't mm-hmm. you? Yep. Did that was that something that you worked on the shape, or was that something that they created for you and put your name on it? Uh, no, I worked on that shape. So yeah, that was kind I, of the start of your shaping prowess, or did it start um, before then? I've kind of always yeah. been, even before kiting, I was always kind of tinkering with surf shapes and stuff. I you know grew up surfing and windsurfing and. Uh, I don't know. I always kind of played around with. I think I shaped the surfboard when I was like fourteen for the first okay. time, just hand shaped one, and nothing, you know, just playing around. Yeah. With you know, trying to create something, but Figuring yeah, I guess I guess when I and then I did some boards with Gastra as well. Okay. Um, that I designed together with Jonah Leepak. And they were the twin tip. They were twin tips. Yeah. Boards that... um, we did a we did one board that was like a mutant, you know, just kind of popular at the time. Like yeah. Kind of half directional, half twin tip. Um, so I'd had some experience with doing boards before that, but really when I got with North, that was when I, yeah, I guess really started yeah, to started get to work more into it. it. So Till and I uh, created the first uh, Sky Pro Model. Yeah. And actually the first one we did was under Fanatic, yes. when Fanatic still did yeah, boards. Yeah, I remember that. In 04, 05. And then I think in 05 or 06, we did the first Pro Model North skyboard yeah and went for that and so were you working on other shapes across the range as well or were you just working on your shape um when you started Um, working on yeah i think we were i'm trying to think (laughs) (laughs) it's a long time ago yeah i think well jaime was doing his pro model and so we were kind of yeah i was helping jaime with testing with his he was helping me with mine um i think at that point john amundsen was still doing like the dragon boards and some of the other twin tips uh, so yeah, I think I was working on a couple different shapes. Yeah, yeah. so you're working on that, and obviously yeah. it must be quite different because a twin tip, you know, is a very different shape to a surfboard. So mm-hmm. are there similarities in what you're trying to achieve and things like that, or is it quite yeah. a different process? Uh, I mean, it's different in some ways, but it, I mean, it's like any product, I guess. It's a lot of trial and error and trying to, you know, try something and kind of have, getting a benchmark and kind of knowing, okay, this is where we need to be and we want to improve on this, and then you just kind of set about trying to. See wrap, what wrap your head around what works and and go from there. So it's kind of the same process, but you know, different style of board, obviously. Yeah, and now you look after the entire surfboard range mm-hmm. um, for Duotone. Mm-hmm. Um, you've obviously recently um, launched the new brand and used yep. to do North. You've got your shaping set up in Maui, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been doing that now for them? Um, so I I took over the. All the surfboard, all the directional design in 2010, I think. Okay. Something like that, somewhere around that time. Um, so, yeah, like eight years. 
and um, initially I was doing a, a lot of it in Australia when I was living down there, <clears throat> and then uh, we just moved to uh, Maui permanently in 2013, Okay. and uh, bought a piece of property there and built a house, and um, it was kind of always my dream to have my own little mini factory set up, my own little facility where I could build boards, so uh, in I guess maybe three years ago, I kind of got that finished and awesome. uh, built a CNC machine and got the whole setup. And so now I'm fully self-sufficient and I have my own facility on my property and I can do everything right there. That's pretty cool. You were in um, Western Australia, wasn't it? Down at Margaret mm-hmm. River. You were yep. living down there with yep. Kristen for a while. Yep. Um, how did you find that vibe? It's quite an interesting sort of spot, isn't I mean, it? That place uh, is amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, we went there initially. For, we used to test when I first got on north in 0405 we were testing in hawaii and uh, that's back when jaime was doing a lot of testing together with ken and they used to rent a place on the north shore of oahu and test over there but winters are pretty can be kind of sketchy for wind you know yeah it's not really the windy season and that's really the time when we needed to be pumping out a lot of prototypes and testing and especially back in those days when the development was happening so quickly and uh, we needed to be in the water every day so we ended up going to western australia to find wind and we were in Perth for a while, and we went up north, and then finally went down to Margaret River. And when we kind of found that place, it was just like magic. It was just, I fell in love with the place right away. And it was windy every day, and there's waves, and there's like un- uncrowded beaches, no one around. So it was, especially in those days, it was we were, needed to be kind of secretive with our testing and stuff. And we could go to beaches where there were no people and no cameras, and no one would so, be taking pictures or exactly, getting yeah. stuff up online sneakily. Yeah, yeah nothing, nothing showing on. up on kite form. And, <laughs> and we were trying some weird stuff back in those days with kites. And, yeah, uh, but yeah, it was cool. So awesome. that's how we discovered Western Australia. And I ended up being there from, uh, I guess, oh six until two thousand thirteen. I pretty much spent every summer there, four or five months a year. Yeah, pretty awesome spot to base yourself. And yeah, I know it's, it's um, you awesome. know, the wind there is incredible. It's like switches yeah. on like a yeah, it's just like a, like a switch every day. Boom, it's windy, and there's always somewhere you can drive. There's there's coastlines facing uh, north, west, and south. So depending on the wind direction, you can just drive around the cape and find another spot where it's windy. And there's always good um, good swell from the Southern Ocean as well. So the waves yeah, really even in the summertime, there. there's always waves. There's always yeah. some kind of swell. So there's How was the um, the surf scene there? Because they can be quite localized, the famous Australian yeah. surfers. Yeah, it's an interesting vibe, yeah. <laughs> they're, uh, they're all tough. No, yeah. <laughs> no, no that's, um, yeah, it's, I guess it's like anywhere, you know, they have their spot. And it's a, such a magical place, I can see why they can get a little grumpy when outsiders come in and um but yeah i i ended up making some really great friends there that i'm still friends with now and um yeah becoming almost a local in yourself i guess if you're there for that long yeah i guess so (laughs) i never truly be a local (laughs) never a true blue but yeah maybe get get close to it yeah and so the move to Maui, what inspired that as a location for you guys to head to? Was that somewhere you'd always wanted to be, or was it just yeah. something that came about? We'd we'd naturally? always kind of we'd always tested there, like from you know even back when it was based in Oahu. A lot of times we'd fly to Maui, you know, on a forecast. They like, oh, go, there's not enough wind in Oahu. Fly to Maui for two days, test kites, and then even when we ended up going to Australia, it was kind of always. We would test actually in the gorge in the summertime because Ken Winter still had a house in the gorge back then. Yeah. So we we actually would split the year between the three locations. We'd be in the gorge uh, in the summertime and in Maui spring and fall and Australia, Australia in, in the, the Australian summertime. Yeah. 
Um, and then that just became a lot of work. I was going to say, <laughs> a, lot a lot of traveling, and, yeah. And then and, I guess and, with testing kit, you must have everywhere. had a lot of stuff that you were dragging about yeah, as well. Yeah, we were dragging tons of board bags and, you know, like Ken had his house in the gorge and then we had a house in Margaret River. And then Ken, Ken ended up uh, selling his house in Hood River at some point and buying a house in Maui. And then, so the gorge was kind of out and then it was split between Maui and Australia. And then, I don't know, it just kind of became clear that we didn't really need to do that much moving around and traveling. Yeah. So <laughs> Maui just became the the easiest and most convenient place to, to do it. And how tough was it to, to get a place on Maui? Because it's quite an expensive and difficult place. It's to a sort of really expensive to. place, yeah. Uh, we got super lucky, actually, because we, uh, we sold our house in Australia in, uh, I guess, 2013, yeah. 2013. And that's kind of just as the real estate market was kind of crashing in yeah, Australia. Yeah, so you got it at the right time. And it was kind of on the upswing in the in the US. And uh, yeah, it was just a lucky transition that we were able to... And kind of, you bought just literally a plot of land, didn't you? And then built yeah, we, everything we on it. Yeah, we found this piece of land that was uh, just completely overgrown by jungle. And uh, it was a yeah foreclosed, like bank-owned piece of property. So it was you know below market value. And yeah, it was kind of a lengthy process. To, I remember yeah. seeing oh, some pictures of story, you. And, was, yeah, I remember yeah. seeing pictures of you and Kristen. It was just like stood in the jungle, going, "Yeah, yeah we've got our we property." Got yeah, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you uh, literally had to clear the whole thing. Yeah. And work pretty hard on it. To, yeah, it, we basically just started from scratch. And uh, did you guys build the house, or did you have people? We help? built the house. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty my, cool. My dad's a builder, um, so I kind of I grew up building with him. Um, yeah, so whenever when I was a kid, whenever I wasn't on the beach, I was like mixing concrete for my yeah. dad or helping him on the job site, and so I had some building experience from that. And so uh, when we were getting ready to build, my dad flew over for like three and a half weeks, and we did the rough frame of the house and got kind of all the technical stuff done with his help. And then Christine and I uh, have been working, working on it on ever since. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how long was it from buying the property and owning this jungle? piece of land to actually being able to move in and sleep a night in the house there. well we actually well did you camp we actually yeah we camp so <laughs> Brilliant. at the time when we got the property we were renting this little studio apartment for way too much money and we we're budgeting for the house and going okay there's no way we can afford to continue to live in this little studio and build and a house rent and build a house so we're like okay we'll go we'll go to walmart we'll buy a tent for 350 bucks we'll, and we'll just uh, camp on the property until the house is done so that's what we did so we camped for like four and a half months wow without power or running water wow <laughs> and roughed it, roughed it for like four and a half months and that must have been great fun it was great motivation to get the house done yeah i guess we were, you're like you're literally sitting there going well if we you know yeah. get it done soon we're going to be in this yeah. tent for another yeah. night yeah we wake up every morning and go okay we got to get shit get done today because uh yeah it's one more day that we're gonna have to be camping if we don't so and you've um you've kind of turned it into a bit of a, a farm haven't you so you've got animals and stuff like that and yeah you live in quite an interesting style of life i guess yeah. where you're not going to the shops and buying heaps of stuff you're trying to be self-sufficient yeah it's uh yeah we're trying to be self-sufficient honestly it's like to really run we figured out over the last five years to really be self-sufficient it's a full-time job and a lot of work which we don't really have time for obviously yeah. we both have other jobs and we're working a lot so um we do we we had we actually just recently uh got rid of our goats and gave them to some friends who live across the street because 
uh, kind of became a lot of work to have them. But we did for a while there. We had like seven goats, and we were milking them, and we're like making. No Christine was making uh, goat cheese, and we had <laughs> we had like all these chickens. We had at one point we had like fifty chickens, and we were selling eggs, and like fantastic. You know, uh, we had like an aquaponics system, growing vegetables, and but recently, like in the last year and a half, we've downsized that a lot. Yeah, so we so no longer have the time. goats, and we have only like eight or ten chickens now, just enough for. Our eggs own, for you guys. Yeah, our own eggs. And we have bees, so we have okay. uh, honey from the bees. And we have a lot of fruit trees on the property now that are starting to get mature that we all, yeah. that we planted like five years ago. So you get your own fruit, your own So veg. we get fruit. Uh, we grow some vegetables. It's funny enough, it's actually really tough to grow vegetables in Maui. Oh, really? Um, or we found, I don't know, I'm, I don't really have a green thumb. <laughs> <laughs> but with the tomatoes, there's a lot of insects that eat them and stuff, and we don't want to use any kind of pesticides. So Yeah. Um, yeah, surprisingly kind of tough. Cause, I mean, we found out that it's really tough to be self-sufficient, but we try to do as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. the best that you can. That's yeah. really cool. It's quite a different way of doing things. Yeah. I've enjoyed the updates over yeah. the years on Facebook. Oh, yeah, I've checked cool. in and yeah. seen them. I thought, yeah, oh, good, good, kudos to you guys for giving it a good go. Yeah. Um, and getting back to, to shaping a little bit more, because I know that's kind of your, your main passion. Um, how long do you spend working on new shapes and things like that? Is it kind of like that's your full-time role you're always um, always looking yeah. at developing stuff or yeah. you sometimes you go for a few weeks without anything on the shaping table while you're just enjoying the fruits of your labor yeah it depends it's kind of comes in waves sort of throughout the year like good pun sometimes yeah exactly <laughs> no pun intended, yeah. no i mean it kind of uh it's always there it's always like it's it's a constant uh, evolution i guess it's a you know but it, it kind of Sometimes we'll be more focused on, like lately we've been really focused on hydrofoils. Okay. So boards are kind of on the back burner for a month or so. And then, uh, you know, and then we'll be working on kites. So depending on the time of year, you know, when it's crunch time to be finishing the Neo, we're focused on finishing the Neo and then the Rebel or whatever. And so. And you still um, work quite a lot on testing the kites as well, I guess. Yeah. 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 So my main thing is uh, kite testing with Ken. So. You know, Ken lives probably 15 minutes away from me. Okay. And so I test kites with him. Like, All the time. A, pretty much on a daily basis, like, you know, three, four days a week. And and then obviously I'm always working on boards. We're working a lot on hydrofoils lately. So whatever the top priority is for that specific time that's what we're working that on that's what you're working on yeah then. it's pretty much full time between all those products and it's quite a tough job testing kites because there's a lot of stuff you've got to do in terms of just go out change the settings come back yeah <laughs> go out change the settings yeah. come back yeah, it's right just down time. What it's it just does. time consuming yeah yeah and it's a lot of trial and error and just you know do you but it's all in the testing like all the products we're doing it's all about just spending a lot of time yeah the more trying, time. trying different things and figuring out why things are working and why they're not and the more time you, you know. spend doing it, the better the end product is, yeah, I guess. And exactly. that's what keeps you ahead. Yeah. And do you get much time to kite surf and surf for yourself and like enjoy your own time on the water where you're not testing and you're not working? Or is it sort of just rolled into one kind of full-time thing? I think I've kind of gotten to the... Like, if there's really good waves and the conditions are great, I'll fully go for fun and just like... Yeah. But it seems like there's always something to try. And there's... It's, I think it's kind of gotten to the point where it's... that's part of the fun in kiting for me now is like I, if I just go ride the same gear all the time I'm like it gets a little boring I want to have yeah. something new to try I'm always kind of yeah. searching for something so you kind of enjoy so that I kind of enjoy that yeah so even if it's a really good wave day and I'm going for fun I'll you know put in a new set of fins and see how they work you know or, or try a different board that maybe I haven't tried in those types of waves yet yeah so there's always something I guess that I'm trying always something to be working yeah. on and 
you're obviously quite a skilled shaper um, in terms of the surfboard. Some of the shapes you've been putting out have been um, really well received and exceedingly popular. How long do you think it's taken you to kind of achieve that level of excellence when it comes to shaping? Is it something that... I don't think I've achieved any type of excellence. <laughs> Thanks for saying so. But, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's anything you ever... Are, you never master it. It's not... Uh, you just try and keep making it better if you can. So it's like a constant evolution that your, your next yeah, shape is your best shape, but then your next shape is yeah, still your best exactly. shape. And yeah, so, I mean, the, the thing is, like, you could take a good board from five years ago. It's still a good board. It's not going to stop being a good board just because it's five years old. But, I don't know, you're always searching for something new and different and a different feeling. And so it's always a constant evolution in that way. And it's not something that you ever, like, master. And you get yeah. you must get quite involved with the construction choices as well because yeah. that's mm-hmm. changed quite a bit recently that's in terms changed of a lot, your yeah. pro model boards how mm-hmm. do you decide that you're going to change the whole construction how do you test it how do you reach that, um, that goal well yeah just it's, that's just also been an evolution over the last five years or so like i guess we did the first pro construction without foot strap inserts four years three four years ago and um that was kind of the beginning of where we are now which, which is kind of going uh, you know, lighter, reduced construction, as light as possible, and and as close to a, you know, custom kind of feel as possible. And that's all really customer and rider driven. You know, people want to have boards that feel like authentic surfboards that have really good flex. And the challenge there has always just been finding a construction that feels good and is still strong enough to withstand the forces of kiting. So yeah, that's a, it's actually a really difficult. Thing to achieve <laughs> and are you sort of led a little bit by the factories that you work with and what they're capable of producing as well or can you sort of move to a different factory if they they've um, got better construction? yeah i mean we actually did switch factories uh last year because we had the possibility to have a totally new construction um, with a custom finish and a clear lamination um so yeah we're constantly looking at different places we can produce and yeah um we're really happy with where we're at now at the factory. They're able to do some really cool stuff, and we see a lot of possibilities going forward with them. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's all these all these facets. You know, it's not just like you can do any layup you want, but then you have to also produce it and produce yeah. it at the right price. And so, there's a lot to it. Yeah, I guess yeah. you know, the, every little bit you add on adds dollars to the overall exactly. cost of the product, and then yeah. you know, you, you do that over several thousand boards. Yeah. Suddenly, you don't, it's you like, don't want to be retailing boards for. Two and a half thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, crazy money. Yeah. And what's the what's the process of of say coming up with a new shape? Um, obviously, you hand shape them in your facility at your house. So you're working with a foam blank and mm. sanding it down and creating something. And then obviously you're creating that surfboard, glassing it up, mm-hmm. making it. How does that go from I guess an idea in your head being tested and then into a factory into a customer's hands? What's the process um, for that? It's I guess it's always, well, I mean, it all starts with the concept and knowing, okay, what, like, creating a target, or what do, what do we want a board to do, and that can come from a lot of different uh, directions, I guess, so it, it could come from a team rider saying, hey, I want, you know, this board, you know, feels this way, and I want it to do something different, and or, you know, customer feedback, or uh, seeing, a, you know, something that someone else is doing, and, and going, oh, that looks pretty cool, and trying it, and trying to search for that feeling or so I don't know there's a million different ways an idea can come about um but basically we create a target and go okay this is the goal we want to achieve with this board and um, we just set about making prototypes and yeah 
Um, I actually have a CNC machine at my place, so um, so you design every, everything's it in computer designed. CAD, yeah, yeah, design it in CAD. Send it to the and, CNC uh, machine, and that pops a shape out. Yep. So I can I have my little setup. I can design it all on the computer, and then um, yeah, just basically put a blank on the machine, and and it mills it out, and then I hand finish it. And but so basically, what I'm doing is prototyping just the shapes at my place. Yeah. And then once we zero in on the shape that we want to have through. Sometimes it takes five prototypes. Sometimes it takes twenty. <laughs> you, never, you never really know. Sebastian came over. Sebastian Ribeiro came over uh, last winter and spent a month with me. So we were making like boards every day, and we got through a bunch of prototypes together with Patry also and Ayrton dropped in for a week. And to have those guys around was really cool because we were able to quickly, you know, go through a bunch of shapes and zero in on what we wanted and what they wanted. And so yeah, once we dial in the shape, then we have basically we're working towards making a finished file basically so that's the advantage of doing it in CAD yeah is that we can a file that you can, can send to the factory exactly and so from. we go through all these prototypes and we're zeroing in on the whole thing and what we end up with is a digital file of the board that we can then transfer to our production in China yeah and they ha- and it's going to be exactly the same and then we start setting about doing the construction and has that changed in recent years in terms of the technology that you can get to that point where you can just send them a file and they yeah. can make it or you know yeah. in the old days we send them a blank in a very yeah a, right. a very secure box hoping yeah, it didn't get exactly. damaged on yeah. the way you'd there you have to send the master plug and they would mold it and you know and then there'd be an increase in thickness and then you'd have to dial Slight it in changes and yeah, yeah. So, so I yeah, guess it's, it's pretty becoming... amazing now. Like a, we can do a whole range, and I can send it all, you know, files in an email, and and they have it. And, and once of you... course, there's still some follow up. I go to China, yeah, a couple times a year to follow right. up and make sure everything's right. And, and I guess once you've got the digital file, then it's backed up somewhere. It's not going to get damaged and lost. Whereas when yeah. you've made the final shape, you're like, don't damage this yeah, board. Exactly, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, team so... writer tries it and snaps it. And yeah, no. and you're like, no, it's taken me ages oh, to get to that point. Gone. Yeah. How did you um? How did you learn all the the CAD stuff, was that something that you had studied before at school or just nope. something that you picked up along the way? I just needed to learn it. <laughs> just like anything, <laughs> like, I think like any skill I've acquired, it's like uh, just necessity. And so, when did you start getting into that? I started designing, I guess in like 2008, 2009. I was designing with the AccuShaper program, which yep. is a pretty easy, simple program to learn. And, um, and then just kind of went from there. Yeah, and yeah. keep working on it. And I yeah. guess as the technology changes, you're updating your skill set and yeah. working on new stuff. And yeah, yeah like and there's that. a lot of really cool programs now that are really easy and intuitive to use. And um, yeah, they're amazing tools. Awesome. Yeah. Um, you've got the new board, uh, the Provoke, mm-hmm. which is kind of like an Ayrton Cozzolino weapon for his yeah. strapless freestyle and stuff yeah. like that. What's the the difference between a board like that and a surfboard for riding waves? You know, is there much difference to it, or is it just kind of a shape that Ayrton wants because that's his style? Uh, the, the Provoke is pretty different. It's uh, we developed it for his style of riding, or for the you know strapless freestyle riding that's going on now. Uh, the idea came from Ayrton himself. It was actually like two years ago when he started to do like these powered handle passes and stuff. He was finding that. When he was using a normal surfboard, he was landing and like bouncing out on the landings and wasn't able to stick his landings as hard as he wanted, like you could on a wakeboard. So he basically wanted to just have like a a board with a surfboard rail and with volume, which he's used to riding, but with a landing and speed of like a wakeboard. Yeah. So um, I thought it was a really cool idea. It was unique. It was something that no one else was really doing. And so I made a few prototypes for him and. 
um, he ended up liking one of them and traveled around with it and took it back to Italy and was, you know, free riding with it outside of the competitions and really loving it. And then we, and then he ended up snapping that board. And then uh, I got an email from him, oh, I broke the board, you gotta make another one. <laughs> and then he had a few suggestions for changes. And so it was actually a pretty long process that it, it, we weren't really, it was kind of outside of the development uh, thing. Like no one really kind of knew we were working on it, I guess. It was just kind of between him and I. And then uh, we kind of got to a point where he really was loving the board and wanted to have it. And then uh, we almost were going to do something last year, um, but we ended up not putting it in the range. And then I made him one more prototype that was even better. And then especially with the tour this year, with Strapless Freestyle, we felt like it was the appropriate time to launch it. Yeah. And uh, there was actually a market for it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why we came out with and it this what's year. And the, what's the difference that makes it... Um, able to handle those landings is it a flatter rocker is it you know mm -hmm. less volume what's the yeah it's a combination of well for the the landings really it's the flatter rocker and the bottom shape the channel which kind of splits the water yeah um so you're not kind of just landing on a big flat surface but it's more like a wakeboard where you're landing and absorbing that yeah. shock through the through splitting the water um and then just the flatter rocker gives it a lot more speed and a lot more stability and the wide tail gives it a lot of pop yeah. So just, yeah, it's really tailored towards that style of riding, going super fast, getting tons of pop for takeoffs, and then having that, that fast, hard landing. Yeah. Nice. And um, is Ayrton riding the production boards now? Is he riding? He's riding the full-on production boards, yep. Yeah, that's yep. quite a good testament to, yeah, it's really to cool. the products. I that... mean, yeah, that's, that's a really big accomplishment, I think, because <laughs> all of our team riders are riding full-on production boards in competition. And, uh, yeah. A good thing to have, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's like. great. Yeah, it used to be that they wanted lighter custom boards, and now they're actually using our full-on production models, which is yeah. great. I guess that means you've you've reached a level with the production boards that's yeah. at that spot, which is good enough for the pro riders to actually exactly. say, yeah, these are working, these yeah. are great, we like those, which is yeah. then great for the customers, because the exactly, consumer's yeah. getting the same board, but yeah, exactly. Sebastian's riding, or Ayn's yeah. riding, or Matthew's riding. Yeah, um, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah, which is a good place to be. Mm -hmm. You've obviously... Um, you know, done lots of traveling over the years and uh, probably seen more ball bags than most. Do you miss that now that you're kind of based in Maui or do you still travel quite a bit or are you sort of quite happy where you are? I'm pretty happy to stay home these days, <laughs> but uh, I still travel a bit, nothing like I used to, but um, I do a few big trips a year. Usually go to Europe every, at least once a year and um, yeah, but it's pretty nice just to be home. Maui's, yeah. Maui's not a bad place, so... Yeah, I'm not too fussed about it. <laughs> and you're getting quite into the the surf foiling over there, which is a big, big kind of movement that's going on. Mm -hmm. um, are you working on shapes for that as well for the hydrofoils? Yep, a lot. Yep, that's been a big focus. I got really excited about hydrofoil surfing about a year and a half ago. Okay, and it's just been kind of exploding in Maui. There's uh, people surfing and surfing and. And just, I think the really cool thing about it is just being able to surf waves that we never even would have considered surfing before and having so much fun, like on knee high, crappy little waves. And the cool thing about it is when you go to the beach, you always get a session if you're going hydrofoil surfing. Whereas if you go surfing, like traditional surfing, I, I find that I end up driving around, checking spots and 
and uh, you know it's too crowded or the waves aren't perfect or whatever that never happens with foiling like you go to the beach if there's any kind of wave you're out there and you get your session and you have so fun it's pretty awesome yeah. and do you find you get more waves with a hydrofoil than you do when you paddle surfing oh yeah way more way, yeah you take any wave you want yeah, yeah. so and you're you, not being you, so picky about oh maybe not this one it's like waves coming I'll have oh it. yeah waves come and go yeah and you can catch multiple waves with not having to paddle you yeah know, you can catch one wave and if it's not real good, you can kick out right away and pump out to the next one. And so you can actually catch the first wave of the set, ride it for a little bit, kick out, pump over the second one, and catch the third wave. And Pretty so bonkers. You kind of get your pick of the litter. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, Maui's obviously been a, a birthplace for so many sports over the years, and um, the surf foiling certainly seems to be really hot. When I was chatting to Pete Cabrino a while back, he was um, waxing lyrical about it and saying how much yeah. he loves it. Do you think yeah. it's something that can transpose from Maui to the wider masses? Is it something Absolutely. that you think we'll be seeing everywhere? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to open up all kinds of places where you didn't even, where surfing probably didn't even exist before. Because it's just more accessible to go on crappy waves, I guess. Yeah. That... You don't need anything really. Yeah. You need a tiny little rolling lump of water and you're having a blast. Yeah. So, I mean, from like behind boats, surfing boat, boat wakes, um, even on like lakes or like uh, waterways where there's, you know, uh, ships coming through, you could surf the tanker waves. Like, <laughs> you don't even need to be on an ocean with waves to, yeah. to foil. But then, you know, all across Europe, uh, the North Sea, where there's, you know, pretty small, crappy little onshore waves, that's like foil heaven. Yeah, so suddenly sure, it becomes like a good spot. Yeah, yeah it's going to be awesome. Awesome. It's certainly something that seems to be taking over. It'll be interesting to see how it develops over the years. Yeah. And are Duotone going to have a range of surf foils? Is that going to be on the I, sort of I cards? Think, I think we'll be seeing that in the future, yeah, for sure. And yeah. you're working on those shapes mm-hmm. at the moment? Yeah, right now we're working on... We just are releasing a new wing under Fanatic. Okay. And so that's going to be a surf and SUP wing. And we're going to be adding more wings yeah. in the near future. Um, and then I'm sure next year... Uh, we'll probably see a lot more stuff under Duotone as well. Because they're quite fun to, fun to kite on, those uh, foil wings, aren't they? Yeah. Because they're so big yeah. and stable, and yeah. they foil in, actually, like, nothing. I rode yeah, one, I was in um, Sardinia, and company there had one, and I thought, oh, this is going to be horrible to foil on yeah. with a kite. Yeah. And actually, it was just a blast. Like, yeah, you couldn't, it's awesome. You couldn't not fall off the foil. Like, yeah, you're doing exactly. your jibes, and you hit yeah, five knots, and it's still going. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's really good fun. So Yeah, it's awesome. I could see it being something that opens up where people buy... A surf foil, and they yeah. use it for kiting, and they yeah. use it for surfing, and it's yeah. it's got that kind sure. of du- duality yeah. to it that yeah. they can exactly do both. Yeah, so depending on your style, you can buy like the super fast one if you're more into racing kind of thing, or if like you can have a crossover one that you surf and foil on. And I think the cool thing about foiling is that it kind of uh, bridges the gap between all these sports and extends the range of every sport. So yeah. whether it's windsurfing, you can go in lighter wind, or kiting in lighter wind. Suddenly, you don't need to buy a big kite anymore. You can just add a hydrofoil to your quiver. Or for surfing, you no longer need great waves. You can just have a hydrofoil, and then you can ride uh, knee-high waves and have fun, or supping, or downwinding. And it just kind of like opens up a whole new world for across all these sports. And do you, are you looking at different shapes for the surfboards that you're riding with these? Are they quite radically different to a standard they're surfboard? really different yeah um, what are you looking for in those shapes um right now we're like trying to make them really as short as possible as functionally possible um uh so the advantage of having a short board is it fits in the wave better um and it's also easier to pump because you have less nose to bring up and down it's less okay. physical to pump so basically the boards we're making now are kind of really short as short as possible packing in as much volume as possible so they're still really easy to paddle and then on a short board like that, the rocker is really important. So you're not 
you don't have too much rocker that's pushing water. You want it to still glide so you can get into the wave quickly or easily. Um, and then also just the the actual bottom shape of the board and, and the way that the foil is mounted on the board. So uh, like a traditional surfboard that has a lot of rocker, um, you try to put a foil on there and the foil is actually operating at the wrong angle. So it's really difficult to paddle. Okay. So optimizing that, that, that actual mounting and surface the, the and getting everything in the... Yeah. Yeah. makes a big difference. So as you're paddling, you're actually starting to get lift from the foil and it, it makes it easier to actually get into the wave. And I guess because, you know, traditionally surfboards, the longer it is, the easier it is to paddle, the earlier you catch the wave. With right. a hydrofoil on the bottom, that kind of yeah. takes that away because the hydrofoil is kind of yeah, in the that power zone of the wave. You, yeah, so it's exactly. giving you that push. So you don't yeah. need that length. So you exactly. can kind of get away with yeah. something a lot smaller. Exactly, yeah. It's certainly interesting times. It'd be, um, yeah, quite good to see it develop. Yeah. And... What's your sort of main passion at the moment? You know, I know you're you're a keen surfer, um, fisherman, kiteboarder, windsurfer, everything. <laughs> what's your What's your one thing that if you could only do that one thing, which one would you choose right now? Oh, I don't know if I could only do one. But, uh, <laughs> I still like. I think I still have the most fun on the water if uh, I'm really powered on like a seven or eight meter kite and there's big surf. I, I think there's no greater feeling than just going full speed down a wave with the power of a kite and just belting huge turns or getting barreled or, you know, that's like, I think that's the, that's ultimate. the ultimate, that's the ultimate feeling for me. Uh, but beyond that, like I've been really excited to go hydrofoil surfing lately. So doing downwinders in Maui, like in the open ocean with big wings or just riding like small waist high stuff on a tiny little board. That's kind of the second best. Nice. And do you still find you get lots of time to have fun on the water in between all the work and the shaping and everything else? Um, Yeah, I don't get on the water quite as much as I used to, but I'm still in the water every day. Yeah. (laughs) Because I'm always (laughs) testing something or whatever, but uh, a lot of it's focused around work and testing. And uh, I kind of pick and choose my days to where I go and have fun when the waves are really good and the conditions are great. I'll stop everything I'm doing and, and go kiting if the waves are good. And what's the what's your vision of the future right now for you as a person? You're going to carry on shaping boards and testing kites, and yeah, there's uh, yeah, there's there's so many different directions right now that we're going, and I just it's uh, it's really cool just to have all these projects and have opportunities to work on all this kind of stuff, and uh, the foiling things kind of just ramping up and getting started, and I think for the next five years we're going to see a lot of development in that world, so I'm really excited about that, and. Um, you know, surfboards and tight surfboards and SUPs and there's a, so lot, of, many a lot of fun stuff to work on. Yeah, so, so many things to shape, so little yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And are you happy right now, Sky? Are you in a place where you think, yeah, life's pretty good, I'm fairly content with everything? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm happy with where I'm at and uh, yeah, no complaints really, I guess. <laughs> any, any regrets over the years? Anything you think, oh, I would have done that differently or had I made a decision there that would have changed the, the way things have gone or you think you've done all the right stuff at the right time? Um, no, I mean, there's things that maybe I would have done differently, but I think, I think you only learn from your mistakes. I mean, that's when you really learn is when you do it the wrong way, not the right way. So you know what to change next time. And so, no, no regrets, just... Uh, just, just learning experiences. Really. Yeah. yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, I think. I like yeah. that. It's a, yeah. quite a poignant way to perhaps end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> learn from your mistakes, as said by Sky Solback. Sky, thanks very much cool. for that. Thanks, thanks for Drew. taking the time. Thank you. I really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. It was great to sit down and chat with Sky. He's a good friend of mine, and I don't get to see him often enough. 
I'll be back next week with another great episode for you. Until then, you've been listening to Rue Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast. Don't forget to share it with your friends, give us a like on social media, and if you feel like it, rate it with five stars on the app. Have a great week.